I want to start out this morning with a statement. You can put that first statement uh, up on the screen. Uh, It is impossible to overstate the importance of one's attitude. It is impossible for me to overstate. So anything I say in this message this morning, it is impossible for me to overstate the importance of one's attitude in this life also See, I believe, I believe that attitude has a profound effect upon the quality of our life now, but also it has a profound effect upon our eternal life as well. And so it is impossible to overstate the importance of one's attitude. Last week, uh, we looked at two polar attitudes, two polar opposite attitudes, and we're going to do the same again today. Uh, we looked last week at gratitude and ingratitude. And what we discovered about those two attitudes is that unexpressed gratitude uh, might as well doesn't exist. Uh, unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. And so what we said was it doesn't, doesn't matter how many thankful thoughts or thankful feelings or grateful feelings or grateful thoughts that you have until it is expressed It doesn't exist. And so what we said bottom line was that God's called us to be the kind of people who are the one in ten that come back and are expressive in our gratitude, in our key relationships, and especially in the relationship, the the most important relationship, our relationship to God. But also in our key relationships, but also in our relationship to God, that we should be people that express an attitude of gratitude. Okay, this morning I want to look at, again, these two polar opposites. And again, I want to say it's impossible to overstate the importance of attitude. And I want you to listen to this. This is going to be my bottom line. I'm going to share this throughout the message this morning, that attitude determines altitude. Attitude determines attitude. And it was Jesus who said it like this. He said, whoever will exalt himself will be brought low. But whoever will humble himself will be exalted. So Jesus is the one who put forth, listen, if, if, it, if it came from me, that's one thing, but if it, it come, it come, this principle comes from Jesus, who went from the highest high to the lowest low. And, and he wants us to know that, that attitude determines altitude. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this truth as it's brought forth this morning. If you're here this morning and uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I just want you to know uh, that we are encouraged that you're here. We're, we're glad that you're here. And if you've come with lots of doubts and lots of questions, I want you to know that we're not put off by your doubts or your questions. Listen, Jesus wasn't put off by people's doubts or questions. And so we're not gonna be put off. And what you're gonna discover is that this is a place... This is not religious. We're not religious. In fact, Jesus wasn't religious. But what we do have is a relationship with God, our creator. We have a, this loving relationship that we've entered into. And I just want you to know this. If you have legal problems, you know, uh, you, you may go to a, a lawyer, and he may be able to help you with your legal problems. If you have physical problems, you can go to a doctor, and a doctor can may be able to help you with some of those physical problems. But listen, who, who do you go to when it comes to eternal matters? When it comes to eternal matters, we, we've got to come to the one 
in, in whom is all eternity, for who is from everlasting to everlasting. And so, and so I want you to know that, that Jesus has answers for not only this life, but also for eternity. And I remember a couple of years ago, there used to be this uh, uh, Pepsi challenge, right? Pepsi used to say, go ahead and take Coke, taste Coke and taste Pepsi. Take the Pepsi challenge. You're going to love Pepsi more than you're going to love Coke. Remember that? Well, I want to share with you, take the Jesus challenge. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I tell you what, if you, if you try Jesus compared to everything else, you'll discover that Jesus is wonderful, that he is absolutely loving, gracious, merciful, compassionate, and uh, that he makes all things new. We sing a song sometimes here, say, it's, and one of the lyrics is that he makes beautiful things out of the dust. Meaning he makes beautiful things out of us. He makes beautiful things out of the brokenness of our lives because all of us come to, all of us come to Christ because of our brokenness. And he can make some really awesome and beautiful things out of that. So one very unattractive and one very lovely attitude, unattractive and lovely attitude, two polar opposites this morning. And you know what? I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you of the unattractiveness of pride and arrogance. You know, it, we, we, we know that intuitively. You know, we, we know that experientially, people who are, who are boastful, braggadocious, who, who are proud and arrogant, they, they, they repel. Uh, pe- they push people away. We, 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 are, we are repelled by, but you know, and, and you know what? You, you see this sometimes in, in celebrities. You see this sometimes in politicians. You see this sometimes even in some sports people who are filled with this arrogance, you know? And, and, it's, and, it, and it's repulsive. Uh, there's a show on TV that I uh, enjoy watching. It's called Chopped. Anybody ever see Chopped? Let me see your hands. All right, it's a cool show, right? It's, it's four chefs, right? It's this competition. And, and chefs are kind of like artsy people, you know? There's a creative element to it, you know? And so, and so th- there's a lot of on-the-line reputation and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and they compete. They make four, uh, or actually three, a three-course meal, and there's an elimination during each of the processes. And they take these mystery ingredients, and, and, they, and they're judged on the basis of um, uh, taste, uh, creativity, and presentation, right? And, and it, the show usually starts off, each of the different chefs are, are given like this, you know, minute promo uh, or bio, I should say, as to what they've been doing, the experience that they have, and why they believe that they're going to be the next chop champion. And, and it, it never fails. Every, every time there's a chef that, that says the reason why he's going to be the next top, top sh- uh, champion is because, and, and the ones who are most boastful and most, most self filled with themselves are the ones that usually fail the, the furthest and the most. Isn't that true? Uh, my wife watches a program called Four Weddings on TV, you know, and it's, and it's the same thing, and, and, and it's the same truth. The, 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 these women who are filled with the most amount of pride usually are the ones that fail the most because it's repulsive, you know? So again, I don't have to convince you of this. We, we know this intuitively. So pride is something that, that we need to resist, you know? And, and I tell you what, we're born into a world and we're born 
with the genetics or the DNA that each and every one of us need, need to admit that we struggle in some area with the issue of pride. And I'll tell you what, even if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, it is just, it is just wise for you not to become proud or arrogant or, or self, selfishly ambitious because it doesn't go well for you. Listen, history is filled with, with the knowledge that, that people who are proud, I mean, it's impossible to be able to measure the amount of sorrow and pain in our world that is directly the result of, of pride and, and selfish ambition. You know, I mean, history is filled. The Bible is filled with example after example of those who fall the furthest and fall the hardest because of the, the issue of, of unrestrained pride in their life. Think about it. It's the original sin of Lucifer, pride filling his heart. It's, it's the issue that marred the universe or marred creation as a result of the pride that was found in his heart. Listen, even people who don't know much about the Bible, right, can probably quote in some fashion or another, some variation of a famous proverb, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, you just intuitively know that, that that, 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 that is true. And the reason why this is so important is because, is because of what I said in the beginning, the statement that I made that, that it can never be overstated the importance of one's attitude in life because, because attitude determines altitude. Whoever will humble himself will be lifted up, but whoever is exalted will be brought down or made low. So we're going to listen this morning. I'm going to give you my outline for this morning. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, all right? We're going we're gonna to listen to the words of one of the most proud, arrogant, religious person uh, who made a transformation in his life. This, th- this guy who we call the Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul of Tarsus, met the resurrected Jesus Christ on a dirt road and had this transformation. He's the example of what I said earlier about having made all things new. Uh, he became a new man. In fact, his name was changed from Saul of Tarsus to to Paul, the apostle, right? And he's going to uh, give us a few verses. And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest portions of Scripture in the New Testament. And, and, and what we're going to do then is we're going to just briefly look at that, but then we're going to come back to it at the end of the message. But in between, I want to look at uh, a story out of the life of Jesus because, because that's going to be the application for us. You see, it's not like Nike. You know, we can't just do it. You know, uh, we've got to come to it. And the way in which we're going to be able to come to the application of of learning what true humility is, is by beholding. You know, there is is power in beholding. Uh, The principle is found in the scripture that as we behold, we become conformed. We become transformed as we behold as in a mirror the image of the glory of God. And there's transformation power that's going to take place this morning. So we're going to begin first with, with the principle. And this is what Paul says to the Philippian church. He, he's trying to get them to live a certain way. He, he's basically saying that, this, that in the church, this should be the atmosphere. This should be the environment 
in which followers of Jesus live. This is, why, this is what church should look like. He says this. He says, if, verse 1, Philippians chapter 2, if, and I want you to know the word if, each of these phrases is not followed by a question mark. So it's not as though Paul is saying that there's a question as to whether or not we have any of these things. No, it is better understood as since. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ. Since or if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, we have all this. If any tenderness and compassion, we've experienced this by being in a relationship with Christ. He says, then make my joy as a leader, as an apostle, as one who's overseer of the church. Make my joy complete by, and this is what he says that he wants for the church to be, of like-mindedness, having the same love, being of one spirit and purpose. And, and, and this is what he's saying. This is the way we should be. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only on his own interests. It's okay to be concerned about your own needs. That's okay, but not to the exclusion of anyone else, but also to the interest of others. This is so practically straightforward. This is not rocket science. Not rocket science. This is this is Paul saying. This is what the environment. This is what the atmosphere of a a church, of a group of people who are followers of Jesus, this is what it ought to look like. It ought to look like they are preferring one another in love. It ought to look like they are esteeming one another more highly than themselves. This is the call to be unselfish. This is the call to be be humble, the very opposite of of this arrogant, pride, selfishness, this self-centeredness. And Paul is laying down the principle for us. And this is the motivation. He's going to go into now what is the the quintessential example of why we should be this way. And and he's going to talk for the next several verses about about the one who went from the highest place to the lowest place as as an example for us to, to not just go ahead and do, but to understand and by beholding him, there's a transformation process that will take place. So he says in verse six, who, Jesus, being in very nature God, God could never cease to be God, but in the point of time, he became something that he was not. He became a human being. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The one who was co-equal, co-glorious, co-eternal with God the Father, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and the word servant there can equally be translated as slave, that Jesus was not in the disguise of a slave, but literally became a slave, a bond servant of God, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, being really a man, God really becoming a human being, He humbled himself. He humbled himself. God humbled himself and became not just a human being, but became obedient to death. But not just death, the death of the obscene cross. 
He became obedient to the point of death. Listen, from the highest height to the lowest low, Jesus' journey out of infinite love. We're going to come back to this, okay, at the end of the message. But one of the reasons why Jesus is so attractive to sinners, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, the reason why Jesus drew people to him, but isn't it ironic that the people that he repelled were religious, self-righteous, proud, and arrogant people. But the people that he drew to himself were the broken, were the sinners, were the prostitutes, were the tax collectors. And the, re- the reason for that being, I believe, is because Jesus was absolutely the model of humility, that he so humbled himself because of this quality of humility that draws us in. You see, they, they, they understood that Jesus did not come. They, believed, they trusted in him that he was being honest when he said he did not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. They believed that he really came to seek and save the lost. And so they were attracted to him. And so they came to him. because That's why I'm saying that, that, that humility is beautiful. It's lovely. When we are humble, we will attract people to us because it is the quality of God himself. For God himself is humble. Now, I love the story that we're going to look at right now because this is the application of, of, how, we, of how we become humble. This, this is what humility looks like. And it's found in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. But Mark tells us one little detail that Matthew hasn't told us. He, Mark tells us that Jesus left the vicinity of Israel, and, and what he did was he, he went down with his disciples to a city on the Mediterranean on the coast called Tyre, and they went there kind of like to rest and recuperate from the busyness of ministry. And uh, he did not want his presence to be known. But Mark says it was impossible that he should keep his presence a secret. So, so, so there he is. He's in this house incognito, right? And here comes this woman, this, this mother who's got this urgent need. And she, obviously, the, the news and the fame of Jesus spread beyond Israel, right? And so now beyond Israel, this woman who's got this need comes to Jesus on behalf of her daughter who is, who is in desperate straits. Now, we pick up in Matthew 15, verse 22, and it says this. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, and this is what she cried. She said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Could you put yourself in her shoes for a moment? Imagine if your child was being tortured and tormented by a wicked and evil spirit. And so she comes to the one who she believes can help her. She's heard about Jesus. She's heard something about him, that he's a healer, that he's a a, a demon expeller. And, And so she comes and she cries out, Lord, Jesus, have mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 23, the first time I read this, I was like, what? Listen, Jesus did not answer her a word. Jesus did not answer one word, not even a word. So his response is a non-response. 
His response is a non-response. He apparently, apparently is ignoring her. He does not, I mean, it, it could have just simply said Jesus didn't answer her, but, but Matthew wants us to know not even one single word. You know, I picture this in my mind. I don't know how, if this was the way it was, that Jesus had his back turned to her, and, and he doesn't even give her so much as a look. He doesn't respond not even, not even with one single word. So his disciples came to him, to Jesus, and urged him, saying, send her away. She keeps crying after she keeps crying out after us. And so what, what's going on here is this apparent cold shoulder that Jesus gives this woman. He's ignoring her. And you know what? That's sending a message. That's sending a message that you're not welcome, that you're not going to get what you want. The silence. How difficult is that? I want you to think about that with me this morning. One of the greatest, one of the most difficult trials that you will ever experience in this life is when heaven is silent. Have you been there? Has that happened to you? When you cried out to God and God seems to be indifferent. God, heaven is silent. It is one of the most severe trials that you will ever experience. But but what I've discovered this after so many years of walking with the Lord and having been through that and done that is that I've discovered this, that, that the times and the seasons in my life when heaven is silent, it is, it is always by divine design. And it is always, always, listen, for my ultimate good and for God's glory. If there is a season in my life when heaven seems to be silent and I can, and I can weather through the testing of silence, Something will come out the other end, will, will, make, will make me stronger and will give God the glory. One of the most difficult things. And the silence of Jesus in, in that he did not answer her a word gave an impression to the disciples so that the disciples were convinced that Jesus didn't want to be bothered and they didn't want to be bothered because their urging of Jesus is to send her away because the, she's crying after us. Now, now Jesus obviously was the object of her faith. And Jesus was the one that she was pleading to. But, I mean, I, I, I think it's not, it's not hard for us to draw the implication that she was even begging them for help. You know, asking them, could you help? Could you, could, could you please help my daughter? My daughter is, and, and, and in, in that response, they now feel bold enough to say, Jesus, send her away because she's an annoyance. She's, she's annoying us. But I think one of the things that is revealed by their comment is their arrogance, their, 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 their coldness, their, their callousness. And, and, and maybe, maybe what the issue is going on here is that Jesus is allowing to the surface come up pride and prejudice. See, there was a lot of pride and prejudice that existed between both Jews and Gentiles. And, and the attitude that Jews had toward Gentiles. Listen, Jesus knew that had to change. If, if the gospel was to go into all the world, that attitude had to be dealt with. I love, I love her attitude. I love the way in which she refuses to give up. She, 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 she doesn't... She doesn't get annoyed. She doesn't, you know, get up and she, she, she doesn't go out with a huff and, 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 and she doesn't turn away, but rather she, she, she's not going anyplace. 
She weathers the test of silence. See, let me just say this, that if you experience times in your life when you stop praying because heaven was silent, it's only because you probably are not desperate enough. It's not until we become desperate enough, until we say to God, we're not gonna let you go until, until you answer, until you bless. This is what Jesus taught when he said that you gotta knock and you gotta keep on knocking. You gotta ask and you gotta keep on asking. You gotta seek and you gotta keep on seeking because everyone who does that will eventually find. So, so notice this now in verse 24. So she's pleading, and now Jesus finally answers, right? And this is what he says. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and she knelt before him. Lord, she says, help me. He says, I was not sent before the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you understand the implication of this? He's saying, lady, you're not my mission. Lady, you're not Jewish. Lady, you're not my problem. I am, I am not sent but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The silence was bad, but now what he has said to her maybe is even worse than that because now it's, it's, it, the implication is clear. You're not my mission. You're not the one that I've come to help. You may be a lost sheep, but you're not my lost sheep. Yet the words that Jesus spoke seemed to me to be an opportunity for her to overcome an obstacle. And, and actually she does that. She comes closer to him. I, I see her first at the door. You know, she's, she's not in there. The disciples are kind of protecting her. But somehow she makes her way so close to Jesus that now she's kneeling before Jesus. And she's appealing to him not only with her words, but with her whole body. She's bowing before him. She's begging him, Lord, please help me. I tell you what, one of the signs of genuine faith has within it the ingredient of persistence. For it is with both patience or persistence that we inherit the, the promises of God. Not just faith alone, but faith that refuses to give up. Faith that is tenacious and faith that is, that is persistent. I just love the way, the way that she's persistent here. Now, now listen, I hope, I hope that there's some of you here this morning, you've never heard this story before. And I want you to be as shocked as I was the first time that I read this portion of Scripture. The first time I heard this message, I mean, it was really shocking because it didn't jive together with the compassion that I believe that Jesus was. Because what he's going to say now goes beyond the, the cold shoulder. It goes beyond the statement, lady, you're not my mission. It is absolutely... Well, it's shocking. Listen to what Jesus said. He said this in verse 26. It's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. Implication, obvious. Not only are you not Jewish, not only are you not my mission, but as a Gentile, the children of Israel, Jewish people are the children of God. Gentiles are dogs. Absolute, absolutely clear what Jesus was doing. She's now insulted, and she's bearing this indignity. He's, he's, he's spoken something that is more severe than just, than just silence, more severe than just, you're not my mission. Now, he outright insults her and says that it's not right for me to give to you what, 
would be tantamount to me giving healing to dogs, the bread that belongs to the children of God, to, to dogs. So one of the things I want you to see is that Jesus is not being cruel here. You see, under the, under the backdrop of so great an insult, the, the brilliance of her humility and her faith is gonna shine for us. Listen, remember who's talking here. I, th- th- this, this, is, this is not a normal pastor. This is not a normal guy. Who's ta- this, is, this is the author and the perfecter. This is the maker of our faith. This is the one who knows what's in the hearts of men. And Jesus, as the author of faith, knows how to draw faith out of us. He knows, he knows how to stretch us. He knows how to mold us and shape us so that we would be conformed to his very own image. I, I, I love it. It is, it, is, it is not an insult that she is not able to overcome. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't return insult for insult. How many of us would return insult for insult? But she doesn't do that. Instead, she persists. And listen to what she says. She agrees. She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, yes, Lord, I'm not entitled to the bread. I'm not entitled to the healing that belongs to the children. I'm not entitled to anything that comes from your hand. That's just a a recognition. It is agreeing with what Jesus has said. It's not making demands on Jesus. You know, there there, there is an element of of a teaching out there that, that says that we are to make demands on God. No, no, we're not to make demands on God. That is a misunderstanding of what faith is. If, there's a difference between presumption and assurance. There's a difference between confidence and rudeness. And she is being absolutely humble and she's being absolutely filled with faith. You see, the, 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 there's an attitude that we, You know, this is so refreshing. This is like a 2,000-year-old story, but it's so refreshing for the 21st century entitlement generation and entitlement society that somehow we deserve God to do for us. And the fact of the matter is, is is that at the very least, it's a misunderstanding of what grace is because grace is giving to us what we ill deserve. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is it is. We're unworthy of, of even the slightest blessing that comes from God. But God gives us abundantly because of who he is, not because we deserve it. And when we model that attitude, you see, it's, it's, it's not thinking less of ourselves, right? It's somebody once said that true humility is not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking of yourself less. It, it's, it's, putting, it's putting others first. And what, 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 what a demonstration she is for us of what true humility is and of the ingredients of faith. She's persistent, but she's also humble in her persistence. And she agrees, yes, Lord, but even the dogs are able to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Remember what I said, that attitude determines altitude. And Jesus now lifts her up and he says this in verse 28. Jesus answers, says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her daughter was healed from that very hour. There's a similar story in the gospels of the centurion. I won't take the time to tell you, but remember what Jesus 
said in response to this guy who said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you could come into my house. Just speak a word and my servant is going to be well. That's the kind of attitude that glorifies God. Because listen, God is humble. God, he says, I am the high and lofty one and I dwell on high with him who is of a humble spirit. This is the requirement of of God's people that, that we would love mercy, that we would do justly and that we would walk humbly with our God. God requires that. In our prayer time this morning, in, in our, with the worship team this morning, uh, w- w- one of the prayers that went up was, Lord, everything that we have, we have from you. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, that's exactly it. There, there's nothing that we have that we didn't receive. And if we've received it, therefore, there's no room for boasting. Human beings cannot brag. But what we can boast in, what we can brag about is Christ and the glory of his love for us. You see, what makes us valuable is not what we think of ourselves, but rather what God thinks of us. And God thinks of us so highly that he's given his son so that we might become his eternally. That puts value upon us. We don't have to self-exalt or boast in ourselves, but we can take the posture of believing that what God says about us is true. Now, let me, let, let, let me kind of put this together for a, a way that, that is so, I believe, beneficial and, and applicable for us. Here is this selfless parent, right? Here is this woman who suffers and sacrifices her own dignity for the sake of the love of another, right? Follow along. Look at the parallels with me this morning. She endures silence for, the, for her child, for the love of her child. She endures rejection. She endures insults. And she is able to banter with the king of the universe and come out the other side as one who has won the d- desire and the plea of her heart. Listen, if Jacob in the Old Testament is called Israel, because as a prince he's prevailed with God, then here's a true Israelite who has, as a princess has prevailed with God. She displays for us the deepest humility. She's walking out what Paul said the church should look like in Philippians chapter 2. Not being selfish, but being selfless, walking in humility, preferring one another in love. This is what Paul said your attitude should be, that attitude, that which is of Christ. Now follow along with me. Look at the parallel. Jesus is the selfless parent who sacrificed his dignity for the sake of others, who humbled himself while never ceasing to be God. He experienced the rejection of men. He experienced the silence of heaven. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced heaven's true silence. He suffered insult. And when he was insulted, he did not return insult for insult, but he committed himself to the one who judges faithfully. He made himself lower than the angels. Though he was the creator of angels, he made himself lower than the angels and humbled himself even further still by becoming a man and even less than a man because in, in, in Psalm 22, verse 6, there's a verse that says that I am not a man, but I'm a worm because I've been despised by the people. 
How great was his journey from the highest high to the lowest low. And he humbled himself even further, not only by being a human being, but by being found in the fashion of a servant, literally a slave. I believe that Paul had in mind when he wrote that, I believe that Paul had in mind the, the event that's recorded by John when Jesus took a towel and a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. The creator of the universe washed dirty feet. And if there's, if there's any motivation so that we should humble ourselves and serve one another in what is called the church, that, that, that ought to be the quintessential motivation. So here is a Canaanite woman who models for us something that we can apply into our own life because, listen, she is a reflection of the one in whose presence she's in. She's coming to the presence of the humble king. She's coming to the presence of the one who who has made himself so humble, who's the author and finisher of faith, and in his presence there's a reflection, there's a transformation that is taking place right before our eyes. The paradox of the incarnation. Augustine wrote this. He said, man's maker was made, excuse me, man's maker was made man's, was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way may be tired and on its journey, that the truth may be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation might be suspended on wood, that the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that the life might die. And then he said this, how, how absolutely illogical it was for the first man, Adam, not to trust and not to obey the one who is worthy who is wise and worthy of trust. In response, God provided a Savior who reflects the absurdity of man's rebellion. Just as the fall involved foolishness, so the redemption of man involves foolishness. For love's sake, God became as humble as man had become proud. For love's sake, God had become as humble as man had become proud. Jesus. From the highest high to the lowest low. Attitude determines altitude. But Paul doesn't leave us with the cross. In his writings in Philippians, he doesn't leave us with the fact that Jesus was simply obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In fact, Paul doesn't even leave us with an empty tomb, though an empty tomb is so important. But Paul takes us back again. He takes us from the highest high to the lowest low and then back again. Listen to what he says. Therefore, verse 9 of Philippians 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The day is coming. The day is coming. It will happen. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess in heaven and on earth. 
Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that's been given to him for the glory of, of God the Father is this, that he is Yahweh, that he has always been God, that he has always been the Lord, the maker of all things. And because of that, listen, he is worthy to be trusted. He's to be loved because he first loved us. He's to be followed because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And because he set for us an example. And that example is that if, 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 we would, if we would be great in the kingdom of God, then we need to become the servant of all. Become the least of all and the servant of all. Because, because, attitude determines altitude. This morning, if you're here and you've never made a transaction, never made a relationship connection to Jesus, please, please don't leave. The invitation is for you. You can do that. It's not magical. It's not mystical. It's faith that responds to the gospel. And you've heard the gospel this morning. And if you will respond by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, say, Something as simple as this, Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. I welcome you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Be my savior. That transaction takes place instantaneous. You, you will be given a new heart. You will be given a new life. You will be given a new attitude. You will be given a new experience. Eternity will fill your heart if you do that. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that as we come to the conclusion of this message, Lord God, that, oh God, that, 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 that indeed, Lord God, that you would be glorified this morning by moving in this place in such a way that the posture that we possess will be the attitude of humility. Or as one says, clothe yourselves with humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Lord, that, that seems to be such an important message in the New Testament that, that you resist the proud, but you give grace unto the humble. So we, this morning, humble ourselves underneath your mighty hand that in due season you will, as Peter says, lift us up. So, Lord, all over this room this morning, we want to just humble ourselves. There's only one person who's worthy of all praise and honor and worthy of our trust and worthy of all blessings. To him be glory in the church forever and ever. To Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the, the one who is given the name that's above every other name because there's no other name given whereby men must be saved. Jesus, Son of God, Jesus Lord. So now, Lord, just fill us with the graces that lend to humility, that, that we clothe ourselves with this same kind of attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ. That is something my, my heart opens to, Lord. Let me be as humble as Jesus was humble. Let that be your prayer this morning as we stand and sing one more song before we walk out and walk this out into our experience.